Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have an incredible conversation to share with you. I just spoke with chess grandmaster Maurice Ashley. He is quite the guy and a wealth of information uh, with all things chess and life. Uh, we talked about many things on this show uh, related to you know applying chess strategies to everyday life, uh, what you can extract from it, some of the things that Maurice is working on, which I am truly impressed by and excited to see play out. Uh, I had a great time talking to him, and I know you're going to love this conversation. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Maurice Ashley. Hey, Maurice, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show. My pleasure, Patrick. Good to be here. So for the audience out there who maybe is not familiar with your work just yet, would you mind telling them a little bit about your background and you know, how, how you got to this point here today? Well, I'm a chess commentator. And usually I would tell people that I'm a professional chess player, but I am now a retired player. And what I do is I do commentary for chess. I commentate on the highest level of chess events around the world the best players who compete in elite events. And I'm hired along with others to break down their game, bring it to the audience, make it entertaining in a way that's different than some people might expect when they're thinking about chess analysis. And that's because I grew up playing chess in Brooklyn. And as one might imagine, you know, growing up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and playing chess in the parks, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the kind of thing where or atmosphere where you'd be analyzing chess like it was calculus and you're trying to break it down in a, in a way that nobody's going to understand or be interested in. It was much more in your face. There was trash talking. Uh, there was music playing. Uh, there was attitude. Uh, it was aggressive. And I, I used that in my chess commentary. I, I took that into my playing career as well, but I use that in my chess commentary all the time. And let people understand that this is psychological warfare on the chessboard, not just some game that you think or esoteric game that scientists study and you know, break down for, for, for its uh, intellectual niceties. That's that. There's that too, of course, of course. but it's gotta be fun first. Yeah. Taking, taking it beyond its maybe academic feeling towards it. Uh, you know, being from Boston myself, I can totally uh, uh, stand by. I, I like the, much more personal end of things, you know, the, illustrating the psychological warfare, the trash talk, all those sorts of things definitely resonate with me as well. So um, very cool. I mean, how did you first get exposed to the game? I'm sure it's a question that you've gotten many times, but tell me what was the, you know, more of like, what was the hook for you that made you obsessed with it or made you really want to, uh, you know, drive down this line more than anything else, you know, in front of you? Well, I come, I was born in Jamaica. I came to the United States when I was 12 years old. And in Jamaica, growing up in the 70s, we didn't have a lot of uh, extraneous activities. So we would go outside and play after school. 
We didn't sit home and watch television. There were two TV channels and the news was the first thing that came on. And that was at six o'clock at night. So we had to find stuff to do. And what we did was go outside and play. And we also played board games. So we played all kinds of board games, dominoes, uh, checkers, and other games. And chess happened to be one of the games my brother and his friends found. My brother's eight years older than I am. And his friends found and like, oh, this game is cool. Let's play some chess. So I took a liking to the game from when I was a kid, but I wasn't really into it because it was just one of the games like the other games. It wasn't until I came to the United States and I was going to Brooklyn Technical High School here in Brooklyn, where I saw a friend playing and I was always a good games player. So I said, oh, I can beat you, trash talk, trash talk, until he kicked my ass. And then I, I couldn't understand why they beat me so easily. Then I happened to stumble on a chess book in the library. I didn't realize there were books on chess. I checked the book out of the library. I think I'm going to go crush my friend. I go back to play him. He crushes me again. It turns out that he had read that book and a bunch of other chess books. And then it was on. Then, because I'm a competitive person, uh, much more competitive in my youth than I am now, but I really couldn't stand losing to this guy. And so I just started studying all the time and playing him every day, finally started beating him. And then we became friends and we went out to the park to play people in the park. And from there, it just became its own thing. And chess is a kind of game, if you play it, you know, it, it's an obsession. It gets inside your soul and you can't think of anything else for a while because you just want to play chess. People have probably lost marriages over chess. I mean, it's like, it's that obsessive. Sure. I know friends who have literally lost girlfriends because they were supposed to be going on a date and they were playing chess and couldn't stop. So it, it really became that kind of <laughs> obsession for me. That's incredible. And I, I can, uh, you know, second that I, I was exposed to chess at a, at a later age, but even, uh, when I first got into it, very competitive, it gets very fun to beat your friends. And then on top of that, you know, you go to sleep at night and I feel like I'm dreaming in chess moves. Oh yeah. Know? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you get usually, that quite a Usually bit. I was losing those positions. That's what really pissed me off in those dreams. I was never winning. It was always something horrible. Like, Jeez. What kind of move was I playing? I was so stupid. And then it would turn out the position was illegal. It could never happen in real life. But, you know, somehow there was a worm in my brain and couldn't get rid of it. Yeah, wake up, get right to the board, figure that That's out. That's right. So uh, tell me about uh, how, how did you hone the skill to become, you know, world class? Because I think for many people, they find an obsession in something. They might pursue it, but their career overrides them or this or that in their life. You know, some event overrides that obsession. What was it for you that drove that, you know, into the realm of being, you know, world-class grandmaster and, you know, doing things that no way had done before? Well, I caught on to the game pretty quickly once I really got obsessed by it. I loved to read. I loved to study. And so breaking it down became that obsession and, and practicing it, finding other players beyond my friends at high school who loved it as well. There was a group, I called themselves the Black Bear School of Chess. and it was just these brothers uh, who play chess all the time. They were older than I, than I am. Uh, many of them are my great friends today. But they played all the time, and they were the biggest trash talkers you could find. And they played Blitz, which is the fast version of chess, the five minutes. Most, most people think of chess as a slow game, five hours, six hours. Blitz is five minutes aside. It's over like that. It's instinct. It's speed. It's aggression. Uh, it's, it's just so much more dynamic than what people are used to seeing. If you go to New York City parks, you see it all the time. They have it in Boston as well, of course, and all around the country, parks where people play chess. And 
so that was the grounding for me. But then I had to go to chess tournaments, official chess tournaments in the, the elite clubs in New York. And I have to say the biggest thing for me was my obsession with learning more about the game through reading. I re read every chess book I could. I put a study program in place for myself when I realized what my weaknesses were. And I just devoured the books. It's crazy because usually you need a guide through all of that. But I just went page by page, uh, game by game, and read whatever the book said, this, this idea, these famous players. And I got this grounding historical knowledge about the game that later served me that I realized when I, like as a commentator, I would remember stuff and bring it up. And people say, how do you remember that stuff? And my fellow co-commentators or grandmasters as well, you know, they'd be like, yeah, I read about that stuff too, man. We, we were like the real quintessential chess nerds who had to know everything about the game. So we'd be quoting people from 150 years ago. Like, yeah, don't you know who Paul Murphy is or what Wilhelm Steinitz said in 1881? I mean, that's when he won the world championship against Zucatari. You don't know that, you know? You had to be, you, like, that's how we were into the game. So uh, it was, you know, it was fun uh, to, to do all of it. The obsession and the passion, the drive, the love, that all causes you to, to just go for it. And that's really how it all happened. Well, that, that's, uh, that's really awesome to hear because I think for a lot of people, you know, they, they develop an interest in something, but they don't know where to take it from there. And to take an approach of just basically voracious reading, right? Going through all the content that exists on a subject, that's accessible for everyone. Similar to how chess is sent, you know, you could make your own board with anything. It's accessible to nearly anyone. Uh, books these days are virtually free. So to be able to just take the content that exists there, that the history, the, um, you know, the legacy of, of the sport or, or the game as it stands to that day, and just be able to dive in is something that everyone has the same equal access to achieving. It's a really cool thing to be able to do that. You know, I, I agree with you, but there's a very important point to make. And that is, even, even though, yes, content is out there, sure, we can all go try to get content. Not everyone has equal access to content though. So I remember back in the day when I wanted to get a book from, from a bookstore that was five miles from home uh, in Manhattan versus being in Brooklyn. And I didn't have enough money to get the book and get on the subway to go home. And I remember one of my friends from the Black Bear School, Willie Johnson, who everybody called Pop, and he's still a mentor to me today. And he's, he's 18 years older than I am. Uh, but he saw that I had a spark and he was a working guy. So he had a little bit of money in his pocket. And I said, I really want to get this book, man, but I'm, you know, I'm going to get it and I'm going to walk home. Is he going to walk home? I said, nah, man, come on. Uh, I'll pay for your ride home. And that's the, that was a sacrifice on my part. And I would beg my, my dad who, who uh, didn't live with us, but I'd beg him to get me another chess book because I didn't have the money to get those books. Or I would go to the library that wasn't in my neighborhood, the public library uh, in the big one in Brooklyn, go there so I could check out books because I didn't have that access that others might've had where you said, I need a book and your parent just buys it, whether or not you know, you're gonna actually read it. Sure. So, so that was, you know, we see that today in, in access to, for example, the digital divide. 
there's a challenge that there's a lot of content out there, but there are people who don't have laptops, the kids out there who don't have internet connection to be able to, to be able to access those things. And they have to put in that extra effort as well. I was willing to put in that extra effort. It's not fair that everyone should have to do that. Totally. And that's a, that's a beautiful story. I'm curious, this is kind of a hypothetical, but you know, sometimes having a, a threshold like that to cross, you know, something where you have to put in extra effort to, you know, get the reward at the end of the day, sometimes that makes you, you know, maybe savor that reward a little bit more than you would have otherwise. Do you ever wonder if, you know, if things were so, you know, accessible, maybe if you were growing up today with, you know, an internet connection and, you know, endless PDF books online, do you think, you know, even such close access could in some ways, you know, lessen the, the value that you got out of some of those books that you were, you know, striving after and working towards, uh, you know, getting in your hands at an earlier age? It's a very good question. I, I think that, I think that you're right in the path that I took made it that much sweeter once I got to the goal. No question about that. That said, I only became a grandmaster. And I know that sounds a little strange to say, Sure. but I didn't become the world champion, for example. And the world champion is the best grandmaster on the planet. Of course, a lot of people don't become, grand, don't become the world champion. Uh, not everybody can be at the very top. But I'm, I'm curious to know what I, would have, what I would have done in the game if I did have that kind of access. The world champion started when, and, and many, as many world champions do, started when he was six years old, six or seven years old. He had total access. He had a grandmaster coming to his house to train him uh, from when he was clearly showing talent in the game and such. So how far could I have gone? I mean, would I have gone further? Would that have brought its own satisfaction as well? So definitely any path you take is your path and you have to own it. And I'm very grateful to have gotten as far as I've gotten in chess, not only say the grandmaster level, but everything I've been able to do around the game, whether it be commentary, whether it's coaching kids, uh, changing their lives, writing books, my apps that I've developed over the years and such, I've done a lot. And, and I continue to be in love with the game, which is amazing. So it's, it's, been, it's been truly a labor of love and a sweet joy to have, have had this, this thing that I love be my life. Yeah, it's an absolute blessing. Uh, back, back to the books, I'm curious, were there any at a young age that maybe were sparks for you? Were there any books that still stand out in your mind as, you know, sort of a cornerstone to your knowledge or one that really helped accelerate your understanding, ones that, or any that you would regularly recommend today? Absolutely. There were so many books that if I start listing them, uh, you'll, you'll say, okay, Maurice, that's enough. I didn't mean you to answer the question. Please. I don't <laughs> mind. Precisely. But their books, you know, it wasn't as much the books, I would say, as the players. So, of course, the books had a certain kind of knowledge in them. My System by Aaron Nimzovich, for example, or Modern Chess Strategy by Ludwig Parkman. Uh, those are books that helped to elevate my understanding of the nuances and subtleties that took place, that take place whenever you're watching a game. And also a book like Logical Chess Move by Move by Irving Chernev. That really breaks everything down in a simple way. I always recommend that book for, for beginners. They want something really basic to explain chess in a great way. But my motivation to play and to become a really strong player were the great players of the game. 
So I would study the biographies and the best games of the best players. Alexander Alakine, uh, who uh, was a world champion, he from Russia. I, they were talking about going back into the 1920s and 30s, who had these fiery games, had vicious attacks that that were so coldly logical, but at the same time brutal in his execution. Or Mikhail Tal, who was known as the Wizard of Riga, he was Latvian world champion, who he, his quote was, you have to take your opponent into a deep, dark forest where two plus two equals five, and the path enough is only wide enough for one. The path out is only wide enough for one. And, I mean, just a straight gangster attitude to chess. He didn't care who was in front of him. He was going to give up pieces and just try to cut your throat. And you either cut his or he cut yours, and that's just how he played chess. Or Gary Kasparov, uh, who many people may know because he's one of the greatest players who ever lived or considered maybe the greatest ever lived. And he had that same kind of attack, attacking slash and burn style, but much more scientific. He lived more closer in the computer age and used that to, to buttress his creativity and ideas. And studying those games, looking at how those players carried out their ideas, especially in this go for broke style almost, that I loved, and especially growing up in Brooklyn, that I relished. You know, we we play in the parks. There was no deep, nuanced, positional, technical, in-game stuff. It was, I'm coming to get your king. You're going to run around the board, and I'm just going to crush you. And that was how we played. And so I was motivated and inspired by those players. So I loved reading their best game collections so that I could learn and glean as much as I possibly could from how they approached the game. Is there any uh, is there any common features or uh, common threads that you noticed amongst some of those greats that you mentioned there that you know sort of gave you know a, that may have acted as sort of a, a guiding light or so you know something that you may have used to try and adopt those characteristics yourself? Was there anything you ever noticed as patterns in those players or? You know, I think the great champions all love the game deeply. And what that meant is that they were hooked on it in such a way that they put the work in so that they could become great. Their styles were different. I named three players whose style was very much in the attacking vein, but you had other players like Capablanca or Petrosian, some way, Karpov, Kramnik. These guys were far more scientific in their approach to the game. They, they had a certain subtlety and end game touch that was remarkable, meaning that they weren't trying to kill you through vicious attacks. They were more trying to poison you, like slow poison or bulk constrictor style, slow but sure. Your pieces thought they were doing something and slowly but surely they look like they're doing nothing. And you wonder, how did this happen? It just, I made a few moves and I couldn't do anything. Uh, to watch all those different styles at work was fast, is fascinating. But the main thing is they all share an immense passion for the work to get to the level where their craft is so well honed that they can carry out whatever ideas and plans that they want to execute. And, and so that's, what, that's my model. That was my model for excellence in chess or for anything is the pursuit the rigorous pursuit of what you want uh, with that mental dedication and focus necessary to excel. And you know, it's going to take nothing less if you're going to be excellent.
is to put that work in to get to get to where you want to be. I mean, to, to build off that, you know, I, I agree a hundred percent. And, you know, the more that I've played chess and the more that I've learned about it, I, I constantly draw parallels to, you know, how, you know, certain events that can happen in a game can, you know, be metaphors for something that, you know, happens outside of chess in real life or in uh you know, in business or, you know, uh, you know, relationships and things like that. Um, you know, it's like almost not surprising to hear that someone like you with, you know, extensive chess abilities can also get into other spaces like app development, like writing books and succeed in those areas as well because of how universal some of these laws of chess seem to be uh, in life and business. Like one thing that always stood out to me was, you know, you can play a really great game of chess, uh, you know, kind of make all the right moves, but still lose. And that applies exactly to business where you can have a profitable business. You can have one that's growing, but you can still get completely destroyed by the, by the industry or the economy. Um, so it's, you know, are there any things, uh, any takeaways that you've found or any applications of, you know, methods that you've uh, perfected or honed uh, through your chess playing that you also implemented, you know, explicitly into your, you know, other endeavors? What don't I implement is the question. <laughs> I mean, chess has integrated itself so completely uh, into my life that it's hard for me to separate where deep personal principles begin or, or, or you know, or, or the chess principles take over and, and, and finish the thought. Chess has been a metaphor for living since its inception. The strategic content in the game the need to make good decisions on every single move, the consequences of poor decisions and good ones, of course, as well. Uh, learning from your failures, uh, beginning well, being consistent throughout, ending stronger. The game is, is rife with metaphor and that's why it's lasted this long. And actually the argument is that the only reason chess lasted 1500 years in such an integrated part of world culture is because it marries so well its processes with the human mind. And we, we get it. You say to someone, oh, that's like a chess match. And they go, we get it. Yes, indeed it is. So it's part of world culture. And as such, it's very easy to pull lessons, as I mentioned, like, you know, from the game that we can, we can marry into real life. And when you talk about making mistakes, when you say it takes... Well, a famous grandmaster once said, it often takes 40 good moves to win a chess game, but only one mistake to lose. And it's such a punishing reality in life that you can literally do most things right and just slip up. And that's all she wrote. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. It's, it, can be, it can be that brutal. But the great lesson for chess as well is you can come back from your failures really important lesson. You can analyze your failures, take a good look at them, take ownership over them, and not only come back and survive, but also thrive. And that's something really important that chess teaches us. There's always the next game. There's always the next game. Take your lessons, learn from your losses, and play again. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's like a microcosm to, you know, our own experience as humans, like you're describing. And you know, I think it's amazing the way that it basically harvests is, uh, harvests wisdom, you know, in, in the way that you might think. And that's what particularly uh, I find amazing about what you're doing with, uh, you know, educating kids on this sort of thing. Because it seems like in, in today's world where, 
you know, everything is focused on instant gratification, the newest uh, video game, you know, each year's rendition of the latest technology, whatever, uh, that, you know, one critical component really missing from the mindset and maybe the education of young people is to focus on some of these more timeless principles and to dig into a game that's withstood this test of time and, uh, you know, and can teach you these things. I'm actually surprised that this is not a more formal part of our educational system, these mental habits that chess engenders. If you think about it, you know, often what you need to do in almost any situation is to stop, think, then act. But the reverse is often the case, right? People act first, think about it later, and then they go, okay, I'll stop doing that. And chess teaches, if you, do, if, if you don't do it that way, you're going to fail. You're, you, you know, and so kids, to see kids learn that early on as a process for decision-making, we find, we find that you're often learning less of a process and more uh, sort of the knowledge that you need to have. But I believe that, pro- that process beats knowledge all day because I can use a process to not only find the knowledge, but I can also use it to create new knowledge, discover new things. But if you're all about just taking the knowledge that exists and, and then replicating that, then you're just never bringing anything new to the table. So chess teaches that to young people to break things down, to really analyze them in parts, to look ahead, to plan, to very importantly, and maybe the biggest thing in my opinion that just teaches, or the one takeaway that I would not want to do without is listening carefully to the other person's intentions. So huge. I mean, we, we're not great listeners these days. <laughs> we want to talk our ideas. We want to explain, this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I believe. You're wrong. I'm right. I mean, we live that in our politics. We live that on social media. We live that in our daily lives. And the art of carefully listening to the other person, really digesting what they're saying, and being able to repeat back to them, in our own words, their ideas, to understand their motivations, that's a true art form uh, in, in the way of living. And we, we're losing that, if not already lost it because we just don't listen to each other. I say we, I, you know, of course, I'm speaking generally. For sure. And Chess says, you don't listen to my move? You know, you know what my move was threatening? It was threatening checkmate in six moves. You didn't see it? You're done. Bye. I can't afford that if I'm playing a game. I, I, I have to know exactly what your purpose is, and I need to understand it on the deepest level. And that's what makes, that's, that's the one thing I would say, because I translate that you know, away from the chessboard, of course, to listen very, very carefully to everything a person has to say because they're going to give you all the information you need and how they talk, how they act, just the look on their face. Uh, so yes, it's amazing how much chess can teach you. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. The way that it plays into communication, you know, uh, like if you're studying communications, you learn, you know, it's not what you say, it's what the other person hears. And I feel with chess, you know, it's something that it always takes two people to play a game of chess, right? You have to, and it's not your game to play. It's, it's, you're, you're doing as much, you know, maybe attacking as defending. You're, you're paying attention to what's happening from the other person. You are forced to insert yourself into their perspective, which I feel, uh, yeah, you're completely right. These days, uh, especially with the way information is channeled, you know, people 
are only exposed to one side of the story or, you know, in an echo chamber of beliefs, you know, it can be really hard, probably more harder than ever with all the information and noise and everything to really insert yourself into the other person's perspective. Yeah. That's a. So difficult these days. It's so sad. It's so sad. I mean, when you think you're, when you think your perspective is the right one, uh, and then the only one, even worse, yep. you're in trouble already. You're already in trouble. And it's hard to tell people that because we're, another thing about chess, I think is critical to, to understand. I mean, that, that's taught me, and I bring chess in so much from what it's taught me. Usually when you, when you, so to speak, master something, you are able to translate those skills into other things. You can feel it very intimately. But one of the things for me is, is you, a person's ability to change, to transform. Most people are not changing a lot about their lives as time passes, either in the short term, often in the midterm, and, and sadly, you know, in the long term as well. And you can, you can challenge yourself by asking that question, how have I dramatically changed in the last year, two years, five years, 10 years? How have I changed? How have I dramatically improved? as a result of that change. There are areas in your life, if you look at, I'll, I'll beg listeners to think about their spiritual or religious life. How much have you really changed that in the last 10 years? And would you be willing to, if somebody brought new knowledge to the table? Or are you just very comfortable in the space you're in and don't even try going there? Because the willingness to change is not very high. You can go into other areas of our lives you know, whether it be personal, whether it be a job, you'll find that there's changeability that people are willing, uh, areas that they're willing to say, yeah, that's okay. I, I can change that. I have change in this area. But you look at a lot of places, the fundamental change is just not something people are very comfortable with. Chess teaches that change happens on every single move. You have to transform one chess position into a completely different one in order to make progress. It's part of life, it's part of growth, it's part of being effective and transformative and creative. So it's you know, something like that to me is, is huge. And the problem that we often have is uh, we just, we're not open to change. We, we're stuck in our ways, we do what we do. This is what we've discovered is good for ourselves. We insist on it with our, with our personal uh, cadre of folks around us. And, and that's who we are. That's who I am, right? That's the response. It, but, but you're not growing if you do that. So for me, it's great to see that, to have something like chess that tells me constantly, change or die. Absolutely. It's the adaptability uh, sort of component of life, which, uh, you know, another thing, you know, it's an area where I feel the modern world has pushed people to the limits of their, you know, sort of adaptability. You know, I think the world that our, you know, great grandparents and grandparents lived in was, you know, a much slower pace of change. And even to them must have felt quite rapid, you know, with, you know, technologies like the railroad and, uh, you know, telephones and stuff right. like that. Well, but airplanes. Yeah. You know, going from, you know, pre-industrial to post-industrial. But now we live in this world where, you know, the, the digital changes that happen on a, on a daily basis exceed what would have happened in a whole year, you know, just a hundred years ago. And so it's, you know, it's remarkable to see that pace of change and to try to develop a mindset that can handle that change. So 
Yeah, yeah. totally. I, I didn't even think of chess in that regard as well. You know, it's another metaphor you can draw. It's just the ability to reanalyze the board every time, whatever your intention might've been on the previous move, you might have to reconfigure your entire strategy, your entire plan. As soon as you see what, you know, maybe something that happened that caught you off guard. Man, you are preaching right now. You are definitely a chess player right there. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You're absolutely right. You, you literally, and you realize, Oh man, I knew nothing. Wait a second. This is a whole uh, new ball game. I need to look at this completely afresh. And if you continue to look at it as though it's was what your plan was is still in play, forget about it. You're going to go. Yeah. You know, I, I think it, it sticks with me quite hard because I, you know, I'm in business, I'm in the solar industry and they call it the solar coaster uh, because mm-hmm. every year this thing is changing faster than, you know, many other industries is still very emergent. So like every year we you know you come up with a business plan it's kind of like planning your move in chess and then some sort of external force comes out of nowhere something that you couldn't have possibly anticipated um some sort of you know they call it a 10x multiplier you know um it's a famous phrase from uh andrew grove who built intel in the you know digital revolution there and it's one of those things that you just can't get too comfortable you can't rest on your laurels you have to focus on on you know today and whatever is occurring today or else you're gonna you know you could play a perfect game again, but you still might lose. And you can have great core principles that you make sure are, are about, again, process, procedure. Uh, keeping your mind open is a core principle that will last forever, right? Of Being course. open to change is a core principle that will last forever, even though it means that you might have to change because of that openness. But that, to me, it's... It, it's I have a habit of going to root causes, right? I I don't want to see what's on the surface. I want to go right before that thing became extant and understand fundamentally why this thing operates the way it does. What makes us successful in this world, especially as you talk about being being ready to adapt quickly to anything that comes your way. And as you mentioned, new technologies, as they fly at us from multiple directions, we have to be able to have some kind of procedure and mindset as well to dealing with this as it happens and not be overwhelmed, which, which means for me, my core is to be more minimalistic, to eliminate as much fluff as I can in my life and deal with the things that are essential because otherwise it gets too complicated. And then that way I can really dig deep, do the deep work that you need to do as opposed to the superficial that is very distracting and in the end, less effective and efficient. Yeah, it's amazing to be able to, you know, reflect on your moves and and life in general and be able to come to those conclusions. Um, It reminds me of what you spoke about in your TED talk uh, related to retrograde analysis. Could you share with, you know, the audience how you sort of stumbled upon that idea and, and, you know, how that sort of has benefited you? You know, like most things, it came up on the chessboard. (laughs) Yeah. There is an author, his name is Raymond Smullyan. I think he's passed away now. He wrote a book called The Chess Mysteries of Sherlock Holmes. And the whole book was about chess positions. The whole book is about chess positions that Sherlock Holmes in this, in this iteration, where in this telling, would stumble on. And it would be like from some game where two people were playing, but a fire broke out somewhere or something happened outside the room. They left 
and Sherlock Holmes walks in on the position and Watson says, this can't happen on the chessboard. And Sherlock Holmes will say, you know what? I think I know how it happened. And he go back and say how this all proceeded. You know, where it all, and, and that was always deep. You'd have to look at the clues of the chessboard to say what the previous moves were. We do that in chess as well because we are all we we learn end games, so we know where we want to go before uh, we get there, and you can guide positions in the directions that you want to go that you know will be winning situations. So you have to study the end games thoroughly. In fact, chess is best learned backwards by studying the end games before the middle game and then before the openings because you know where you want to go. You have to know where you want to go if you're going to be successful. So that TED talk essentially was. Uh, the seeds of that TED talk came from my learnings in chess and talking about the importance of knowing the future and knowing the future as you operate from the present. I, I love that because, you know, like this whole podcast, like knowledge without college podcast, you know, really uh, a lot of the momentum in my own life came from looking at, you know, the, the opportunities on the table, looking at the situation many of my peers were getting into with, you know, student loans and, you know, uh, degrees and things that didn't necessarily add up to, you know, valuable skills in the marketplace, things like that. And, and like you said, if you don't know where you're going, you know, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to get there. You're not going to be successful. So trying to use that same method to sort of work back, you know, how would you want to live a good life? Um, you know, I actually heard you originally on the Tim Ferriss podcast. Uh, he very, he talks very much about lifestyle design and you know, that same exact idea of basically starting at the end goal. Where do you want to see yourself um, in the future? How do you want to end your life rather than focus on today and doing, you know, going with the flow or going where maybe your peers are going, but focus rather on, on the, the end game. I love that. Yes. You know, it's funny, uh, as you may have heard me say on, on Tim Ferriss uh, in that, on that interview, during that interview, is Tim really upended my life for a while. I mean, he screwed me up like badly because he challenged me to live what I believed, right? And he was talking about, about how we often just go in through the motions, do what we're doing, act, act for today and sort of let tomorrow take care of itself. And we don't rethink our assumptions. We don't revisit our assumptions on a regular basis in order to challenge how it is that we're living at that point in time. And I thought I was a pretty open-minded guy. And then Tim just went off the deep end and I went with him for a while. <laughs> uh, I would say the reason I, I say I went with him for a while is because I tried to implement change in my life more quickly than was proper for this, for the setting I was in more proper. Cause you know, you want to change, but also you, you live in a, again, in an ecosystem around you, people who are parts of your lives. And if, your significant other or your friends or your parents, if they're not also high, their change quotient is not also high, then you're going to buck up against opposition very quickly. Yep. And, and that could cause severe problems in your life. Not that you shouldn't do it, but you have to think it through and you shouldn't stop uh, out of fear, but you just need to be aware that even if you want to change it, it may take a little bit of time to implement it deeply. I'm not that kind of person. I, I learned something new today and I want to implement it five minutes from now and get down that road. I can say safely that now I'm living that life that I envision uh, and I get to travel the world. Well, pre-COVID, 
I get, I get to travel the world, do what I love to do, make a living in the way that I want to make it, uh, have my, my dearest people in my life uh, in, in the place that I want them to be in, uh, relating to them the way I want to relate. You know, I've taken control over the experience of life as opposed to having life taking control of me. And even recognizing the places that I can't control and having the mindset to deal with those events that are simply outside of, outside of any person's ability to, to control. For me, uh, that's, that's really the maturity in life. You know, the, the wisdom prayer, if you will, that you have the, the, the courage to change the things you can and the wisdom to accept the things you can't. And just was part of healthy living. Absolutely. And I, I think you raise a really important point there about, you know, trying to change too quickly. You know, I think it goes back to the chessboard once again, you know, you, you kind you can only really do one move at a time. You, you do your move and then the world has to acknowledge that move. Um, you know, you can't teleport the pawn to the other side of the board. Right. Um, That's right. So it's, you know, I, it's sort of taking in stride piece by piece and sort of ending up at the vision of where you, where you'd like to see yourself. So, well, what's next? Uh, what's next for you? Where, where would you like to? What's on the radar for you right now, as far as um, you know, where your where your uh, you know major initiatives? What are you focused on? What what can we expect out of Maurice Ashley in the next you know five, ten, fifteen years? What are some of the bigger picture things? Well, you may or may not have heard about uh, the campaign or seen the campaign that's going on right now with. Uh, me and Hennessy. Uh, yes. And that, that's a wild rapid campaign, we call it, which is, you know, they, they showcase a piece of my journey to where I've come, but also what is my wild rabbit, which is what's your ambition? What's your future? The same question you just asked me, what are you all about? And, and they're supporting me in my latest initiative, which is to, to, to address an issue that I think has plagued not just the black community, but society in general for lots of years. And, that's, and that is the lack of recognition of the success of black intellectuals. When I say intellectuals, I mean those who pursue fields of the mind, scientists, tech, uh, people in technology, the STEM, cell, the STEM fields, uh, engineering, mathematics, and the like. You, you find, and I said, you, know, you can't be what you can't see. You find that a lot of people, when they think about African-Americans, they think of famous athletes, if I say LeBron James and Steph Curry you know, and, and James Harden and those folks instantly know who they are. You think of famous entertainers, actors, comedians and the like, uh, musicians, but you don't think of scientists. And a really big thing happened to me around this topic. I asked my son this question. My son comes from privilege compared to what I grew up in, and we thought we had educated him really well. And I asked him to name a few black scientists, and he couldn't name one. And the one he thought of was Neil deGrasse Tyson. And then after that, he was stuck. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I said, and, and he was embarrassed, and I was embarrassed for having not taught him enough about uh, people in, in those fields. And the reason is, and, but, but when I say to him, you know, name a few basketball players, African American, and it's like, okay, do you want me to name the starting five of the team or the guys on the bench? Which team do you want me to pick from? Right? And it's like, it's over. We just, you just go on a hundred names and not stop. I have to stop yep. him. 
And that is because that's something that's not recognized in our culture. It's not prized and something extremely, extraordinarily important. And what that does is it causes a, from the African-American community, kids to not pursue those fields because they don't see the examples of it. So they don't feel they're gonna be successful in those areas. And so they spend a lot of time doing other things that they think they will be successful in. And B, you don't see the ones who are successful in it, that you'll say, wow, there's this one and this one, and you know, there's a Maurice Ashley and the other Gross Tyson, and there's a Lewis Latimer, and you, know, you just, just keep going on and on. You don't talk, people don't recognize those, those folks in the community. And, and it has a carryover effect because the greater community, if you don't see enough of those examples, you might be less inclined to hire. You might be less inclined to bring them into your schools and give them certain kind of leadership positions. So we're gonna work on telling those stories. For me, that's a big project ahead, the untold stories of African-American intellectual achievement. Really showcase it in a way that people can appreciate the, the contributions that African-Americans made and they continue to make in society in a significant way. And uh, I think that's gonna have, a, I hope, let me not say I think, my hope is that it'll have a greater societal impact even if a few kids are inspired to become scientists uh, or you know, any of those intellectual, enter any of those intellectual fields, uh, I think that'll make a big difference. I, I love that. You know, I, I agree entirely that there's certainly a discrepancy there between, you know, who you think of, you know, when you think about, uh, you know, kind of the celebrity amongst different, you know, races and things. and um, and I think it's a hard topic for a lot of people to discuss because they, in many cases, people ignore it or they don't want to acknowledge it. Um, but it, it's, you know, whether we like it or not, I think, you know, in a young person's mind, you know, the affinity is a real thing. You know, looking at people who, you know, are down the other end of the line, you know, later in life and they've done something with a similar set of characteristics as you, whether that's your mentality or the color of your skin or anything like that. And if those examples are not front of mind, if those examples aren't showcased, then, uh, you know, it can create a, you know, just a, it could be a limiting belief, um, you know, and there's so many amazing stories to share there. I was recently um, uh, heard story of like Clarence Thomas's upbringing, you know, people beyond science and in, in politics and law in, you know, other areas of, uh, you know, just general leadership. And there's so many amazing stories to share. I think that's really really an unbelievable initiative to, to take on, you know, cause that's the kind of thing that you, you know, may get initial feedback, but I think it's something that will likely take a hundred years to, you know, show the, show the, uh, you know, even then being sort of like an immeasurable impact, but has, uh, you know, something that could be substantial, uh, you know, in the, in the you know, bigger picture. I think that's a, a scary thought hundred years, but it's a real thought. It's a good point. It's the end game. We're not, we're playing the opening move in a bigger gambit. And so it is the end game that something that we recognize needs to happen. And so you can't just sit back and say, well, it's going to take a long time. You just have to start and see what comes of it. And hopefully it's something that gets embraced by more people quicker than not. And change comes across more quickly than not, but you can never see that before you start. You just Certainly. Start. 
yeah, it's a, you know, it's planting seeds, you know, it's like, well, you know, you don't get, uh, you know, you don't plant an apple tree and get the apples, you know, the next day it's, you know, creating that. And I think it is, you know, not to say that it takes that long because the impact has to be today in order to, you know, the kids that are being born today are growing up in a world of a different overall, they have a different worldview. And as they ripen into maturity and into their careers and into life, you know, the, the impacts that people make, you know, on the second end, half of their life can oftentimes, you know, farther, you know, significantly outweigh what they're able to do in their youth. So. And I'll make a point to you, another story of impact along this line. I was teaching chess in Rikers, on Rikers Island, jail in New York. And I went in for the first time to teach chess to a group of teenagers who got in trouble and were there waiting for their trials and court dates and all that. And I came into the classroom and the teacher, he happened to be white, good guy, uh, said, here is Maurice Ashley, the grandmaster I told you about, who's going to teach you chess. So he had already been teaching them chess and they were bringing a grandmaster into, into the place to teach these, these kids who are locked up and trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives now and dealing with the consequences of their poor decisions. And I go in the room and there's this one kid in the middle of the room, feet up on a chair, leaning back, African-American, most, sadly most of them were. And he looks at me and he looks at his teacher and he says, he's no grandmaster. And his teacher looks back at him and he says, what do you mean? This is Maurice Ashley, the grandmaster I told you was coming to teach you guys. And he said, he can't be a grandmaster. I mean, he thought, he said, I mean, I thought he was going to be Asian or something. Mm. Wow. And I'm looking at this 18-year-old black boy and hearing what he just said to me, thinking there is proof positive. The man just walked in the room. Your teacher just introduced him, told you his name. And you see an African-American like yourself and you insist that there's no way this person is a grandmaster. And your perception of what intellectual achievement is and what it should look like is so warped that even proof doesn't matter to you. So I heard that, I was hurt, but I was old enough to understand. And I thought, man, this is really messed up. Okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I said, before I even taught the lesson, I said, listen, uh, what we're gonna do is we're gonna set up five chess boards. So we set up the chess boards and like, oh great, we're gonna play chess. I said, uh-uh, no, that's not how it's gonna work. Five of you are gonna sit on this side and I'm gonna play all five of you. And they looked at me and they're like, what? There's no way you can do that. Nah, nah, I'm gonna beat him. What are you talking about? You can't play like that, nah. And I started playing them one by one. Little did they know what was coming at them. And I started, I mean, and I was just going board, you know, table to take, chess set to chess set, bing, 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 boom. And I started taking pieces and I'm crushing one and crushing the other and just fast. This kid is still sitting in the back watching and as I'm doing it, as people are starting to lose and they realize I'm actually doing it and I'm not thinking on any of the boards because they're bad and why would I need to, right? Mm. I start quoting Sun Tzu, Art of War. I say, you know, Sun Tzu says that you've got to know your enemy before you get into battle. 
And now they're like, this guy's quoting <laughs> Chinese, ancient Chinese text. Who is this freak? <laughs> and then I said, as I'm playing, I said, why couldn't I be a grandmaster? Because I'm black. And I let that just echo through the room. And the other kids recognized what his assumptions were for what it was. And now they started turning against them. And he just stayed super quiet in the room. But afterwards, you know, I got, I got their respect. Of course, I beat all five of them and got their respect. But later, uh, I thought about it. And I, you, know, you realize, what did this child think that got him to where he is right now? The mindset of that, that took him to where he is. And I'm hearing some, I don't know if you're hearing the fire trucks yeah, outside. Yeah, okay. sirens. Uh, but what was the mindset that got him to where where he is today the, the poor decisions that he made and the the sense of himself that he couldn't be more than so for me that always stuck with me and that's think that's something i don't want any black child it shouldn't be any child to look to see to see success and think that that can't be true and especially not to think i can't be that that is not something I can do because of who I am or the color of my skin. Yeah. He was in a mental prison probably before he ended up in actual prison. Right. That is correct. Yeah. That's, that's remarkable. I think that's how many people, you know, even if you don't end up in Rikers or anything, you know, a mental prison can be equally as debilitating. More so. More so. Yeah. More absolutely. so because you can be in an actual prison like Nelson Mandela and keep your spirits high and keep your head up read study, improve yourself so when you come out you can lead a whole country out of a devastating period because he's not because the body is locked in but not the mind Uh, in his case very much so it's clear this boy's case that his mind was already locked up and so you know things were going to happen to him well it's a remarkable thing to be able to go in there and you know bend the bars in real time you know show i don't know where he is today you know, I, I don't know where he is today. Maybe one day he'll hear my words and, and let me know if he's still alive even. Uh, this was 14 years ago. Wow. But hopefully I had some sort of impact on, on the other young men as well. And I, I hope they, they changed a little bit. You know, obviously I'm just one person in a giant system. So you never know who's going to change as a result of the things you say, but you still have to say them. You know, it's that, uh, it's that old idea, you know, like a one degree change over a long enough trajectory, you know, like if you were to go from Europe to the United States, take a one degree change on a boat, you know, it's the difference between ending up in like Florida or Nova Scotia. Right. So, um, you know, I think it, you know, the smallest things can oftentimes lead to the biggest change over time. So I wouldn't doubt, uh, some significance there. Each one of us has to make our contribution, no matter how minimal it seems. Uh, it, you never know how you're going to affect the world. And so you just need to make the contribution you believe in wholeheartedly and then let the rest take care of itself. The universe will embrace your energy. And it, you know, as you said, it may not be in your generation that the change occurs. doesn't mean you don't do it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's uh, playing the groundwork for, you know, the world to come, you know, where do you want to see whether it's at the end of your life or, you know, in your ancestors' lives, you know, how do you want them to ultimately 
uh, be treated, right? Your, your descendants, yeah. In seven generations, uh, as as uh, the the Indian tribe or the Native American tribe, I forget which one they they are, but I know there's one that says, "Treat the world uh, and think about the world for seven generations from now." Well, there's you know one thing that should, yeah, absolutely. And if there's one thing that you know, I think we can expect to be there in seven generations, it'll still be chess, you know, given it's you know, long life. True that. <laughs> True. So Maurice, uh, uh, I really appreciate your time today. It's been an honor to talk to with you. And uh, I'm wondering if, you know, before we wrap up, if you have any final asks or requests or anything for the audience that you'd like to direct them towards. Well, you know, I have a new app coming out, so I guess I have to sell that. And they can go Please. to my social media pages. It's, it's called Match Maurice Ashley Teaches Chess. Uh, it's actually a newer version of, it's a newer version of the old app, Maurice Ashley Teaches Chess. We're going to be building it bigger and better. And we're going to add an element of trash talking to it. So it'll <laughs> be fun while you're playing. And so if people are kind enough to take a look at it, that would be cool. You can just look me up on my website. Uh, or my social media pages, you should find me with my name. And let, let uh, the games begin. Fantastic. Love it. Well, I'm truly looking forward to seeing, you know, uh, more from you in the future here. Excited to see these initiatives play out. And um, I direct everybody over to, you know, your social media and uh, definitely, you know, pick up match. Sounds like a great time. Um, could you tell everyone where to find you on online or on social? Well, mauriceashley.com is my website. Perfect. And you can look me up. You'll find everything from there. Excellent. Well, thank you again, Maurice. Uh, true thank honor you. to have you on the show and uh, uh, take care. Thank you. Thanks so much, Patrick. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.